From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. Having uh, lived part of my uh, career into a composite shop in Boeing Defense and uh, seeing the battles of do you go composites or do you go metals? And that is a religion in aerospace companies. And there's always kind of that tug of war. It's just like, is it going to be a metal part or is it going to be a composite part? And it depends. <laughs> that was Jeff DeGrange. Jeff is the chief commercial officer of Impossible Objects. Jeff was formerly a vice president of Stratasys, and prior to Stratasys, Jeff was with the Boeing Company, where he led the certification and qualification of flight hardware, but with different added manufacturing technologies for the FA-18 Super Hornet and the 787 aircraft programs, as well as other advanced manufacturing initiatives. Jeff is one of the founders and past chairman of the Direct Manufacturing Research Center at Paderborn University in Germany, and serves on several industrial advisory boards. Jeff has a BS in Industrial Engineering from the University of Iowa, and an MS in Mechanical Engineering from Washington University in St. Louis. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for joining the show today. Um, we've known each other for a while, so I'm excited for the conversation. Um, I like to start all these conversations out to give uh, people an opportunity to, to set some context of kind of where they grew up, kind of what got them on the path towards working in manufacturing. So kind of what were some of the the early days like for, for Mr. DeGrange? Well, hey, Mike, thanks for the invitation to be on your uh, podcast today. So I grew up on a farm in Iowa. So uh, as a farmer, you, you just have to learn to do stuff. And then um, I went from the farm to getting an engineering degree. And my first job was with McDonnell Douglas. And I actually started in final assembly and flight test of F-18 Super Hornets and uh, was and been in manufacturing ever since. Um, and that's where basically uh, McDonnell Douglas uh, was acquired by Boeing in, in the 90s. And it was in the mid 90s is when I ran across this technology called stereolithography. And uh, wasn't directly involved with it at that point in time, but I was just mesmerizing to see the laser dancing across a photocured resin and actually making physical parts for wind tunnel models and, and for bid proposal items that were going to the Pentagon at the time. And that's how my love with additive all kind of started. And so was there any particular draw to the aerospace industry coming from the farm? Um, no, um, my... No, it just the, the university I graduated from, there was like basic three major companies that basically recruited uh, from the College of Engineering and, and McDonnell Douglas was one of those companies. So just by pure happenstance, I was more of a, a car guy at heart than an, an airplane guy. So go figure. And so what was it? Uh, so you got to see some of the early SLA technologies. How did that intersect in kind of your what you were doing early on in, in your engineering career? Well, um, not a lot because I was doing basically traditional manufacturing and I, I was really blessed in the sense that kind of looking back on my uh, um, time at McDonnell Douglas is that we were vertically integrated, uh, meaning that uh, we had the, the largest five axis machine shop on the face of the earth that we could walk underground 
tunnels to. Um, we had a very large composites fabrication center. Um, we had basically a sheet metal center. We had a chemical processing center, able to make uh, take raw materials, make it into a structural part, becomes a sub assembly, and ultimately an aircraft that gets in all of the other components that put into it. So um, really, really fortunate to get to see how um, structure was pretty much made from various types of materials that became a, an aircraft that got flown away. So from raw materials, the aircraft that got flown away, and, and everything that kind of comes comes along with that, with the, the specking of materials, um, the processing of those materials, the quality standards, etc. So very fortunate on that. So we didn't get to really use additive in my first half of my career at the company because it was all basically on traditional manufacturing technologies. It was in the second half of my career um, at Boeing um, that I went into a group called Phantomworks, uh, or now it's called Boeing Research and Technology, and I got into advanced manufacturing technologies of looking kind of over the horizons on what kind of technologies could we be uh, investing in and aligning to different types of products. And that's where uh, really uh, took off far as additive manufacturing. And so what's, uh, for those who may not be familiar with kind of the aerospace industry and kind of the time scales that they're looking at, like how, how do these big companies view technologies especially in manufacturing, like 3D printing and added manufacturing, like how, what is their kind of thesis and say, hey, we're going to see the bunch of these, we don't know what's going to work. We're going to see the bunch of different technologies that are coming uh, out in, in the, in the public domain. What, what's kind of the, their approach when it comes to looking in, at investing R&D dollars into, into yeah, these types think, of tools? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it, it, I think you have to maybe answer that question on when I was there, a long time ago because I think it might have changed in, in the current sense um, and I'll give you maybe a, a, a an example or two to maybe kind of highlight it so with the f-18 program to give you kind of a your audience a timeline here it was basically in the um, 97 98 time frame and uh, we were doing uh, the company was doing a major uh, redesign of the forward fuselage for the F-18 Super Hornet. And one of the things and part of that redesign was putting in new avionics boxes and flight control boxes that needed new uh, environmental control ducting. Uh, the heat loads and the airflow was critical for those types of components on the aircraft. And they would typically... Um, and those types of components would be changed uh, with some frequency over time to give it added capabilities. And then sometimes you would need to change the environmental control ducting systems. Because of the shapes uh, and parts, it was a clean sheet design. So we were open to a new material process. So we actually made some parts with uh, a laser centering technology at the time and, and showed them to the design engineers on the program. And, and uh, they were kind of blown away. And, and then we took them to program management and we got buy-in. So we had that push and pull uh, for that particular project. And uh, then it was just a matter of then setting up a program and getting it funded and, and uh, a project uh, of, of bringing it to life. And keep in mind, this was basically in the uh, late 90s. And we had to overcome this whole 
faction of, oh, well, hey, that's stereolithography. No, it's not stereolithography. It's laser centering. And you had to kind of go through that whole educational process with the people because um, certainly uh, with some, they all they could think about was photo cured resins. It was great for a prototype or for a model, but not anything that was going to be on an aircraft for 30 years and had to overcome those obstacles of education. And what was the major, I guess, benefit from, from using additive? I mean, there's, there's design freedom that everyone talks about, but obviously cost comes into it, supply chain flexibility. What, what was like, you have two different stakeholders you're trying to sell to, right? The designers and then the, yeah, the management. So, so when you looked at the redesign of the aircraft, um, so you didn't have to invest in tooling. A lot of these parts were either injection molded or rotational molded. So the non-recurring tool design and tool fabrication costs goes away. Uh, many of these parts basically had things bonded onto them or assembled onto them as far as clips and brackets and other types of components. That, uh, say, a 10-part uh, 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 assembly now becomes an integrated part that you can, you can build. So uh, reducing some of the labor that goes into making the part. Um, you can also basically lightweight uh, versus the standard ways of, uh, that you get with the, the build freedoms of additives. So uh, certainly when you take weight out of an aircraft, that's very important. So that was that aspect of it. So now think about it when the, uh, the F-18 leaves the factory, now it's in, in service, um, maintaining it. So in order to get a spare part, it's a now that the whole digital, digital threads there and so sustainability is much easier. So if they need to upgrade to, they put a different avionics box in with a different heat load and need to get a different part, well, they can get that pretty quickly now because it's all a digital manufacturing technology. And so, I mean, we're talking kind of late 90s. This is the early days, certainly, of, of laser centering compared to where it is now. I mean, that had to be one of the first kind of, pushes to actually make some of that equipment production ready, right? Like even, even now you see some, some machines that are still mostly prototyping, but like how hard was it to get a system that early on to a point where it's qualified and you had the materials locked in, your process controls locked in and working with the manufacturer to, to do all that? Great question, and it was a real challenge. And and again, I'll just kind of a, give you all your audience a fun story that uh, at Boeing at the time we, we started off with low rate initial production with uh, internal using the internal facilities to build uh, build these parts, and then the company also set up and spun out a, a, a couple companies to do this. One happened to be on demand manufacturing in in Camarillo, California. Um, but one of the things that we noticed that uh, we had a, a certain type of uh, laser centering machine uh, locked in the, uh, the version software that you were running. We had the materials spec, and with everything uh, kind of well-bounded uh, on the process and on the materials, um, we saw all kinds of variability. Uh, uh, and one of the fun examples that I still remember to date is our facility, the, the facility in uh, Canoga Park, California. I think it had about a dozen machines in it. And the folks that were running that operation named all of those people, uh, all the machines, people's names. Like, well, Joe's doing fine and Mary's having a fit. And, 
and Jason, well, he's kind of on the line. And, and so we, we, we definitely saw um, significant process variability from machine to machine back in those days because it was really more of a prototyping um, technology and not that repeatability that you need from build to build that typical manufacturing technologies give you. And how we worked around that uh, in order to adopt and use the technologies, we basically put travelers into the build things. And so they had to meet a certain mechanical property and had a whole process there. As long as that they met those mechanical properties, then the build was considered to be a go or good. And uh, if it didn't, then it was a, um, a failed build or no go. And that probably had to be, that whole project is one of the first real examples of putting production parts onto aircraft, right? I mean, this that whole process of going through the qualification, that's timely, it's expensive, and really like, the, I mean, a lot of the same work that you had to go through back then 20 years ago, you still have to do today, right? Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And there was other learnings that we kind of... Uh, fell into. It wasn't by design. It just like, oh, when we went to set up the initial um, supply chain to do these parts, because this was for a production aircraft program. These were for flying parts. Um, then we had to go make the decision, do we make or buy or do both? And so when we go to buy, it's just like, who do you go to to buy laser centered parts from? Well, there was a number of companies out there that had multiple machines and were subject matter experts in, in the technology. Um, Great prototypers, um, but they had to learn their way as far as becoming um, production. And one of the things you can do with a powder bed system is that you could pause it, and if you had room in it, you could drop another part on top of it in order to maximize your output on the machine, which is pretty common for most people in the services business. Um, well, you change the heat load and potentially change the whole um, mechanical properties for your parts. And so we had to amend the specs to say, hey, this is going to be the build layout. It's frozen. You cannot add or change anything. And you can't move it around to the front or the back or left or right that um, um, it's frozen. And if you need, do need to do something, you have to consult with the company to get approval before proceeding forward with it. And so those are the types of things that we had to kind of overcome in the early days because we, uh, we would see the changes in, in those travelers. Uh, that was basically the go, no go criteria on the builds. And with, with that, I, let me see if I can ask this question in, in a way that makes sense. But all of this work that you're doing with, with Boeing, it's a lot of effort. It's a lot of investment. It's a lot of people's time and presumably proprietary, right? Like there's like, this is pretty, pretty detailed. Like you've invested a lot of money into it. I mean, what, what was kind of the viewpoint of, of that data, that effort? Was it like, hey, we've done all this work on flame retardant nylon and hey, we're going to kind of use this to, to scale out internally? Or is there a realization that, okay, like, hey, we need to, like, there's only two, two people that can actually do any of this work. We need to build the supply chain and, and help kind of push this out further. Like, how did, how did you strike that balance, if that makes sense? It does make sense. And again, it's a, a good question. So most of the, so the company, the, uh, 
did get funding from from the Navy to do this, but the bulk of the kind of the development and certification of the process was done on what they call company internal research and development funding. And it was millions of dollars that was spent, so the company viewed that as competitive advantage and kept and kept that pretty uh, pretty tight to the vest as far as what the material allowables were and, and the process specs, et cetera. Um, and I think that for certain uh, additive materials and processes to date, I think that's kind of the uh, that, that's kind of the, the, the standard that happens. I wish it wouldn't be that way. I get it. I get it, but I think that if you could find a way that uh, could leverage and, and, and continue to scale out the use of the technology, uh, I know shortly after we um, we rolled it out on the F-18, Northrop Grumman was our partner uh, on the aircraft, and um, um, they started using it. And um, seeing seeing the advantages of it, and then ultimately the, the net went over to the F-35 program. Uh, but I think there is ways in the competitive advantage for these uh, for these larger OEMs would be is where do you apply it at in your products? What benefits is it giving it to you? Does it give you more payload or better fuel efficiency or better performance or lower cost of sustainment of the, of the vehicle? It's not so much, hey, here's your material spec, here's your process spec, and here's who you can go buy it from. Because the more robust your supply chain is, and the more knowledge that you uh, share out there in, in the larger community, I think um, um, that, that just drives price points down for further use and adoption of the technology for other, uh, other part families within the vehicles, my belief. For sure. And so kind of where kind of did your career go within Boeing? Kind of what, what kind of what did you transition to kind of what you did all this work and qualifies in the part you get it on, on, on the plane, kind of what, what's next in the career? Yeah. So, um, there we went from defense Boeing defense products and, um, we said, Hey, where can we use this at in commercial aircraft? Now commercial aircraft is a completely different product with a completely different set of uh, requirements. And, uh, to your comment that required a fire retardant, uh, material which really didn't exist at the time. So we had to work with uh, some folks out there in the supply chain to bring forward a material that would meet not only the technical requirements, but also the uh, cost requirements of the program. And so we were able to then get parts and get specs put in place to get them onto the 787 Dreamliner, which was uh, certainly the, the pride and joy of, of commercial aircraft at, at, at the time for Boeing. Um, and then while I was there, we also were looking at just like, well, a lot of these um, additive technologies have small build chambers. And most of the parts that we build, uh, many parts that are built in the aerospace industry are larger in sizes. And so we needed to have a, a larger scale machine. And then that started, uh, basically I formed a partnership back in uh, the mid-2000s with uh, Stratasys. And, uh, and, and Stratasys, uh, per our poll, brought to market the 900MC and the Ultem 985 materials, which was, um, you know, a three foot by three foot by two foot um, um, largest build chamber at, at the time. 
it's all changed now with some of the, the BAM systems and some of the the other uh, systems out there. But uh, that was a, a kind of another major uh, stepping stone. And from there, I then went over to the Stratasys and kind of uh, uh, led up their focus on taking it from prototyping to production. How do we go further? You know, what do we need to do with the machines to make them more repeatable? You know, the whole thing of uh, throughput, uptime, repeatability. Um, those are really important to people that are looking at using this technology, regardless of the industry, for as a manufacturing um, technology. Uh, what materials do we need to have? What kind of consistency? And um, that's what I did for a number of years at Stratasys, of kind of working with a number of industries uh, worldwide on kind of crossing that chasm from, from uh, prototyping to production and, and figuring out from a team perspective what we needed to do as far as gaps to fill, as far as information. And that's really interesting. You mentioned the, the point about kind of co-developing a machine with, with Stratasys, with an OEM while you were still at Boeing. And, and that, that seems to make a lot of sense where you've got a customer that knows the industry, that knows what they need, and also has the investment tools, the money to invest in the technology specifically for their application, but also have a, a business case after that to use it. Right. And so that seems like an interesting pairing to, to really come together. And, you know, kind of on a more informal basis, the same thing kind of happened back in the late 2000s or early 2000s with 3D systems when they brought out the high Q systems of knowing when you kind of had thermal runaways going on or knowing when things are going to get too hot and resulting in park curl warpages in your powder bed systems. And so I think it just makes a lot of sense to have those types of, it benefits both sides. So what was it like going from kind of making parts, being a, a manufacturer over to the, the equipment manufacturer side? You get to see a lot of different industries. There's different decisions you have to make in terms of focus areas. So what, what were some of the, the big differences that you saw going from kind of this huge, massive manufacturer in Boeing over to, to Stratasys? Well, first of all, the speed at which decisions and, and, and the, the speed at which you could get things done, because at the time Stratasys was about a 500 person, so it was going from a small to mid-sized uh, company. So um, much more agile, than, as you would expect, versus a major organization. Um, <laughs> I had to kind of highlight that. I, uh, if I had to get a PO place for a new supplier, say such as yourself, if I was at the Boeing environment, you had a whole process, which would typically take weeks for that to happen, to add you as a new supplier. And maybe within a month's time, you would see a PO or um, we could do business together. At Stratasys, I filled out a one-sheet form handed to the buyer at the company, and the order was typically done that afternoon or the following morning. It's just, I mean, that, that, that's, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. And at the time, I mean, you're, were you still focused mostly on kind of defense aerospace applications or was it more broad? So the main focus was aerospace defense and automotive. And um, so aerospace and defense are pretty similar uh, in, in kind of requirements. I mean, you do have general aviation, which is different than commercial, which is different than defense. Um, but on the automotive side, they had some material needs that we weren't offering 
uh, in the FDM process at the time. I mean, nylon six is a predominant material uh, that's qualified. Um, but the big thing with automotive companies that I think all people in the additive and manufacturing industry knows that you have to uh, meet the quality standard and the unit cost is, unit cost is king. So it's, if you're going to build 100,000 vehicles a year, uh, you have to be consistent and you're going to have to meet the, the cost bogey there. And typically, um, most of the additive processes um, that I was involved with just didn't have the speed and the cost factor to really kind of buy its way into parts uh, for a production vehicle program. Now, let me say that there is a pyramid on the automotive side. So if you look at the upper pyramid of, of the high performance cars or the high luxury uh, in cars that are doing maybe thousands of cars a year, there's there's opportunity there, there versus kind of more the mainstream uh, vehicles that uh, that it's all it's all price driven. And how is the as your ad strategist over this period? Um, you've seen kind of the late 90s, the technology at Boeing kind of start to mature. There's a handful of very high-end applications in production. Kind of what was the general industry doing at the time? I mean, you were also, you're heavily involved with the, the AMUG organization. You're a dyno. So you're, you're seeing all of the, the many of the conversations going on in terms of overall adoption of the technology. What, what did you see kind of from around that time in terms of, of people understanding 3D printing, the changes in the marketplace? Um, two things come to mind over that time period is number one, I think that because you had additions of, you know, powder bed, extrusion, uh, photo cured, uh, stereolithography, DLP systems really weren't in place at that time. Um, you had, um, believe it or not, we even had some experience with the old laminate object manufacturing technology back in the day. And um, uh, people were using it more and more for prototyping. It just, it just wasn't stereolithography as kind of the, the mainstream technology for prototyping. You started to see many of these other additive processes being used for various types of prototyping. So you saw kind of uh, a more uptake of using the technologies for, for prototyping uh, within the industry. That's number one. And number two, as far as on the manufacturing side of the coin, I saw um, kind of a, pu a push to using the technologies to make tooling, various types of toolings. And uh, uh, I think we've all heard over the years, jigs and fixtures was, uh, was, was uh, an easy insertion point. And it basically de-risked the, de the technology because typically for tooling, um, they usually had long lead times, and so if the technology didn't work, you could quickly iterate and make a second, second build on that. And so um, it really was helpful on kind of building confidence in the technology, uh, kind of in a low-risk environment. So uh, expanded prototyping and expanded tooling usage, usages is what I saw. Not so much. We were kind of the trailblazer, um, like it or not on really using it for um, flight hardware uh, at the time. And what was it like from thinking from the OEM perspective of, of were there big changes you were trying to do to the machines or even the overall process, thinking about post-processing to make it more production ready? Because I mean, we all think about the, 
the printing itself, I mean, automated to a degree, like once you get your design in, but there are backend processes, there's ancillary equipment, like there's other considerations that make for a full manufacturing process. Was, was that also a big push at the time to make some of these machines? I mean, it still is today. How, how do you make them transition from prototyping only to, to production? So uh, during my time at Stratasys, um, we did have a big push on what could we do in order to kind of maintain um, reducing any type of scrap that would come out of a build uh, with better thermal controls and feedback devices and stuff like that, knowing when things are getting too hot or um, something changed in the build environment and being alert. And that was a big focus. And we also had some collaborations um, with some really smart people outside the company that was helping us put where we needed to uh, focus at in order to make the machine more robust with the end goal of increasing part yield coming out of the system. Uh, the back end piece of it, um, to your point, still, still problematic for so many processes even today that you know, the part just doesn't come out of the machine and you inspect it and put it in a box and ship it. There's so many, uh, for, for so many other uh, technologies, you basically have to um, have a lot of steps in between. And many of those steps in between, um, it is improving, but does require uh, human inter intervention to get it to whatever level to get it to the next step. And, but we didn't really have a big focus on that. Um, we did have, uh, for the FDM technology, we had the breakaway support. So um, we did do some work with the support generation. So the minimizing how you would pull off the, because um, most of the materials that we were working with uh, for manufacturing applications was mainly uh, breakaway support materials. And so how do we actually come up with kind of a, 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 a smart, um, support system in order uh, with it in mind to say hey you have a technician basically going to remove the support system from the final part let's do this that so makes it as easy as possible so there was definitely work done on the support software and support generation on that front to help aid in that um, the company came out with waterworks so basically for like uh, some of the abs materials and stuff like that you can put it into kind of a hot water tank with agitation and the support material will dissolve and leave you with your final parts. And so talk about kind of your, your next, next step in your career. So you progressively get, go to smaller and smaller, smaller companies. So talk about kind of your next jump after Stratasys. So after Stratasys, I went to Impossible Objects in Chicago, um, basically an emerging technology company with uh, for 3D composite materials. And uh, what was really interesting about that is it's using um, composite fiber sheets, which having uh, lived part of my uh, career into a composite shop in Boeing Defense and uh, seeing the battles of do you go composites or do you go metals? And that is a religion in aerospace companies. And there's always kind of that tug of war. It's just like, is it going to be a metal part or is it going to be a composite part? And it depends. <laughs> Um, is what was really exciting about uh, the technology. And plus, I, it, at my point in career, I really wanted to kind of uh, go to a startup and, and feel what uh, feel all the levers of the startups, being close to the investment community, 
um, in a small company, um, you're so close to the bottom line on, on what things are doing. A lot of people have to wear multiple hats. Um, um, you can be very agile in a small company, but it was basically the material combinations that was the big allure to me on the composite sheets and the different types of matrix materials that you could uh, use in the process to make uh, today either a, a thermoplastic composite or a thermal set composite uh, um, part. And, uh, and there's even um, opportunities to do other types of uh, materials uh, far beyond what I just said there with, with the process, which is really, really exciting. But um, the cultures are so different. So now I'm with a small company, past life mid-sized company, and then a, a mega company. And, and so you go from having major processes and bureaucracy to minor processes and, and very little bureaucracy. And so, so along those lines, I mean, um, we work together. We I've been doing materials work with possible objects for a number of years. I mean, there's that materials mindset about kind of what materials right for what application. Certainly, with the the IO technology and the combination of uh, a carbon fiber or composite veil and uh, thermoplastic or thermoset, like you're saying. It's pretty unique to to the industry, and and so do you want to talk a little bit more about kind of the kind of from your standpoint as the three D printing kind of your work in the three D printing industry has evolved? Like, what are some of the big um, advantages or, or or big kind of poles of the technology now, specifically with with IO's technology, as as you're seeing from from customers now that it's been. 40 years since 3D printing has been around, but you've got new technologies emerging all the time and, and new material sets. So for your audience, I mean, we have a number of uh, Air Force contracts that we're doing various types of materials uh, development work. And uh, one of the exciting ones is that we're actually uh, on a development path for doing uh, unidirectional or uniaxial fiber sheets that's going to uh, raise the mechanical properties and the strength properties. Um, absolutely um, major pull from, from various DOD agencies because now you actually have an additive process at the end of the day that could yield um, structural types of parts without all the tooling and all the skilled labor and, and uh, all, the, all the expensive capital equipment to, to, to make that, that part. So that's really, really exciting. Another, uh, another aspect is, is the material combinations. I mean, depending on what program you're talking about, what kind of sets of requirements, um, it certainly has to be developed by people such as yourself, uh, but there's so many like qualified materials out there. It's just like, oh, like when I was on the F-18 program, one of the composite systems was an IM-7 um, com composite fiber. Well, can we get an IM7 composite fiber sheet that could uh, the right grade of it that could run on um, the I/O system? And you know they use a different uh, they had a, a resin system. Now can we get at a resin system in powder form? And if the answer to that's yes, that opens up a lot of opportunities in what they call the rapid sustainment office and product lifecycle office to make all kinds of uh, spare parts. On, on that front, so that's that's pretty exciting. 
But um, besides material combinations, there's some really interesting things as you kind of look over kind of these emerging programs. I think we all agree that a lot of emerging programs in um, like electric vehicles or batteries or hydrogen fuel cells. Um, for example, batteries. I mean, there's some interesting material combinations uh, that could potentially be um, developed in um, developed for the I.O. process that could yield uh, really cost-effective um, components for new battery construction. And, you know, I, uh, we have a thermal set. And so for anything that might be a, an air vehicle or um, a, a drone, so weight is king, so you don't want to do these with metal, uh, and you have battery packs, and if a battery pack catches on fire, um, that can all be contained with a thermal set. Uh, a battery case, a simple example there. Um, so it's the material combinations. And besides that, it's also, it's a technology. We're, we're smaller size right now. You know, we're using basically 12 inch by 12 inch fiber sheets in the process. But far as um, uh, scalability to larger sizes and faster build speeds, we got plans for all that. So we can go bigger and we can go faster. And one of the things you mentioned it early on when you were talking about kind of pitching your first business case at Boeing is like people are always stuck on when you were looking at SLS versus people in their mind had SLA in their parts or in, in their heads of like these brittle parts. So uh, the Impossible Objects C-band process is, is certainly unique as you look across the different spectrums of traditional DMLS or SLS and FDM and SLA. We'll put a video in, in the link of, of this episode so people can see it and, and see how it works where you stack sheets and use a, an ink and a, a polymer powder to, to bind the, the sheets together. But as you're talking with people, as you're trying to explain the technology to, to folks that may be even familiar with 3D printing, I mean, I've always wondered kind of what as more and more technologies kind of come out there, like it, it becomes increasingly more difficult to explain the nuances between new technologies and how they work where people are very set in their ways of like, Oh, like do, does it use a filament? Does it use uh, is it liquid resin? Are you depositing? Like wh what are you doing in, in terms of this process? So how have you found kind of the receptivity of, uh, of people's understanding of, of, of this technology, but more broadly, like what are, are people open-minded to, to things they haven't seen before? Well, I think that's a, a multiple part answer to your question. Um, for most people um, saying, hey, it's a lamination process where we actually have a fiber sheet, apply an ink and, and, a, and a powdered material to it, stack the sheets, and then um, compress them together to form your parts under heat and pressure. Um, I think fundamentally most people kind of get that, but then you then you say, okay, here's how we heat and press them together, and then here's how we remove the unfused fibers to get to your final composite part. That's kind of where we um, start to lose some folks. In order to kind of, uh, and then I will also say as part of my elevator pitch is, is that, hey, if you're, and most people are not familiar with compression molding. It's kind of like compression molding without the need for any type of discrete tooling to make your parts. And um, 
the best way is we do have a little video link with a, an animation that's about a two-minute animation that I think when most people watch it, they go, ah, now I understand, is, is what I recommend. Because it is, um, yeah, for most folks, it's, it's so different, to your point. Yeah, and it's been been interesting see, to see kind of uh, the evolution of the process and seeing how many uh, you see this with the many different three D printing technologies and and companies along the way is like you're kind of feeling around for what is that kind of application that is going to make sense that lines up from a cost perspective, from a geometry perspective, from materials combination, and it just takes time with with all the technologies across the board, right? Maybe, People didn't wake up and and say SL, SLS is going to be great for uh, or SLA is going to be great for dental implant or um, retainers and things like that, right? It takes time to mature these different types of markets. Uh, yeah, and I've always found that you know with the broad range of uh, additive processes and materials out there, uh, which one's going to best meet your needs from a technical perspective and from a cost perspective. Because I think there's a fit for all of them, depending on what those requirements are, cost and business. But, you know, from, from an I.O. perspective, you know, so where are some of the kind of the, the key um, launch areas that we've had some successes with for these carbon fiber, fiberglass composite um, parts or tools? And one area happens to be in the electronics tooling area, uh, mainly for wave solder pallets and reflow pallets and other types of components used in the electronics industry. Again, tooling, it's low, it's de-risking, it's low cost, uh, is a, uh, we're getting some traction in the electronics area. And then if you just think about the electronics um, printed circuit board manufacturing markets, billions of dollars, and uh, electronics are constantly on a, on, a, on a churn, so new product introductions happen all the time. It, in many cases require different types of tools and so you, you you have the product mix you have the volume and great fit for additive so um, that's 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 one focus area uh, for us that we're getting adoption the other area happens to be for the drone or the unmanned area uh, which would make sense because you want basically um, lightweight uh, for longer fly times or more payload and uh, so that's kind of a second uh, swim lane for us. And so maybe taking a, a kind of step back and in terms of reflecting on your career. So for those who are, are starting at, at the very kind of beginning of their, their journey in manufacturing, maybe specifically 3D printing, added manufacturing, what sorts of advice do you want to share with them having worked at super large company, productionized additive, OEMs, you're at the kind of small company, like what, what sorts of learnings can you, can you share with the next generation of folks that are coming, coming into the market and into the space? Well, great question. And I think it depends on each individual, but, um, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give your audience kind of a, an example that that's a real example that maybe will answer the question is I have, uh, a niece and nephew, both about the same age, graduated graduated with mechanical engineering degrees, and so the one calls me and he goes, "Hey, I got a I got a I got a um, an offer from a, a 
a major aerospace company and I don't want to go work for the major aerospace company because I'll just be a number. And, um, and he goes, I'd rather go work for a, uh, he went to work for a, a smaller, um, a smaller organization, about 50 people that actually made custom, um, machines for making, uh, crown implants, uh, for, for dentistry. And he liked it because, you know, he, he had, a wide range of uh, of responsibilities and kind of designing the machine, doing the uh, component selection, testing the machine, and so that was his responsibility, and so that's what he liked. Now, on the other side of the coin, my niece, who's a mechanical engineer, she got a job from a a, a big name uh, tractor company, and um, and she goes, oh, I don't know if I want to go into a big company, you know. And she goes, I just don't want to be pigeonholed into doing, you know, this function. And she accepted the job and she's still, she's very happily doing fine in this big tractor company, green tractor company. <laughs> and, um, and I told her, you know, uh, that she started in one department and she, she got really deep expertise in that engineering function. But in a large organization, you have a lot of other engineering disciplines. So after you feel like you're bored or you don't like the management uh, in that given function, then rotate post for an internal job inside that larger company and go learn some, uh, expand your skill set by moving over to another function within the company. And usually larger organizations too, have the funding to do uh, work with newer technologies versus smaller companies. So it depends on what you want. Do you want to go deep? Do you want to kind of do it all? Uh, um, and then, you know, once you're in, you, uh, want, whether you want to go a small environment or a large environment, um, and you start to have a, a couple years under your belt, you have some options. You can either stay on the technical route if you really like the technical aspects of it and solving technical problems, so you can really go deep in becoming uh, technical. And if there's a certain aspect of it, they'll say, man, I really like materials, and I really want to go deep in polymers and go get all these advanced degrees in, in polymers and stuff. Then you, uh, for, for mid to large organizations, you could become a tech fellow. So you could become kind of the... The subject matter expert and go in a technical fellowship uh, around that so if that's if that's your love and your passion or the third option would be is it's like hey you know I, I understand technologies I want to go into management uh, and you have that you have that so you have three distinct paths once you kind of get in uh, get into your career and start working in it for a few years that so you can either stay on the engineering route become a technical fellow or go into management for sure and so uh, as we wrap up today, I mean, we'll, we'll add a video of kind of the, the CBAM process, but um, are there any places where you're going to kind of be in person so that people can come up and talk to you or, or maybe even see the machine in the coming months? Yeah. So uh, next month in Chicago at the McCormick Place, we have the IMTS trade show that's happening mid-September. Um, I will be there all week. So if any of you are watching the podcast today and have any questions or want to learn more about the Impossible Objects uh, technology, uh, please come and see us. Uh, we'll be in the uh, in the additive manufacturing pavilion. So uh, feel free to stop by. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time to Jeff sharing your story. Awesome stuff. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation, Mike.